We have come to the halfway point in David's life. And this will be the last message on David. I could go on, but after nine messages, you're probably getting weary of hearing about David. So we'll be, when I come back from holidays, we'll be on to something else. But at this halfway point in his life, it's a good spot to stop and look back and review where he has been and then to look forward as he navigates his future. He is now 30 years old as he assumes the kingship of Judah, where he will reign for seven and a half years. And then he will reign over Israel for a further 33 years from Jerusalem. Psalm 78 and verses 70 to 72 give to us an overview of his life. Look what it says. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep he brought him to be the shepherd of his people Jacob, of Israel his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands he led them. He chose David his servant. That was his anointing by Samuel. He took him from the sheep pens. That was when he defeated Goliath. He brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob. That was when he was 30. Between 17 and 30, he is pursued by Saul, who is finally defeated and takes his own life. At 30, he takes the throne of Israel and rules over Judah. That is when, and David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands. For the first 50 years of his life, David walked with integrity of heart, except for a few lapses, as we've discovered. The last 20 years of his life was downhill, leading him, I believe, to die a broken man and broken-hearted. When we read a verse like 2 Samuel 5, David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned for 40 years, it's easy to overlook the journey that took him to the kingship. It had been a long and difficult journey to the throne as we've noticed in past weeks as we've been living with David. There were experiences that he wanted to forget and other memories that he would cherish for the rest of his days. It is the same for us. As we look back over the years, we need, as it were, to take Jesus with us as we walk through the art gallery of our past life, asking him to take down those pictures that remind us of hurt and pain and disillusionment and that, that still affect us, casting a shadow over us. But also to enhance those pictures that enable us to relive moments of joy and fulfilment that still mean so much to us. Those 13 years David lived as a fugitive where he was often discouraged and disillusioned prepared him for the throne. 
And one of the things we must always remember, God works all things for our good to those who are called according to his purpose. And that's David. Finally, David, chosen and anointed by God, becomes the second king of Israel. How did David take the throne? He did not charge in, saying, at last, this is mine, and announcing to all and sundry, there is a new king in town. The years leading his people and those 600 men and their families had enabled him to learn how to lead others so that they would follow. David is a sensitive man. He's been a shepherd and he knows how to win the affection and the trust of people. But now he is faced with success. The Scottish writer Thomas Carlyle once said, for one man who can stand a prosperity, there are a hundred that will stand adversity. David's predecessor Saul, dead by his own hand along with Jonathan his son, so that now David has an open door to take the kingship with both hands. Look how he approaches it. He says this, In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, Go up. David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. He is aware that he is king-elect, having been anointed by Samuel when he was a teenager. But here we see the spiritual man that he had become. He totally submits himself to God. He does not assume that he can just take the throne. But he must have the throne God's way and in God's time. There's a saying which says, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. David does not do that. David is saying, Lord, I know what your will is, but I will wait until you unfold it to me. So he asks, is it time, Lord? And God, revealed his, and God reveals his plan to him. Begin your reign in Hebron. God is saying to David, we will do it one step at a time. David says, shall I go up? God says, go up. David says, where shall I go? God says, go to Hebron. And that is precisely what David did. He began by going to Hebron and ruling only over Judah, his own tribe. During those seven and a half years, there continued to be war between the house of David and the house of Saul. The house of David, the house of Saul rather, grew weaker and the house of David grew stronger. The old was giving way to the emergence of the new. Now let's look at David's rise. 2 Samuel, 
verse 3 and verse 2. And you may wonder why we are reading these verses, but it will all become clear. Just keep it in mind. Sons were born to David in Hebron. The firstborn was Amnon. Remember that name. The son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. The second, Kiliab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, keep that name in mind, the son of Makar, daughter of Telmar, king of Geshu. The fourth, Adonijai, the son of Haggith, keep that name in mind. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithrim, the son of David's wife Eglah. These were all born in Hebron. It took me about half an hour to get those names right last night. I don't know whether I even got them right now. David has six children by six different wives. This polygamy was David's downfall. It destroyed his life and through it, it sowed the seeds of Israel's destruction and captivity. I find it amazing. He knew the teaching of Genesis concerning marriage, that a man was to cleave to his wife, one. And also Abraham, the founder of the nation, he had only one wife. David, however, collects women like sports people collect trophies. The wives he took in Hebron were took to Hebron were Ahinoam, Abigail, Makar, Haggith, Abitul, and Elgar. And add to that, Micah, his first wife, was restored to him. But that is not all. According to 2 Samuel 5, 13 to 16, and 1 Chronicles 3, 1 to 9, he had many other wives and concubines who bore him children in Jerusalem about whom we know nothing. It has been calculated that David had 20 sons and one daughter called Tamar, the sister of Absalom, who was raped by her half-brother Amnon. So in Hebron, Ahinoam bore Amnon, Abigail bore Chiliab, Makah bore Absalom and Tamar, Haggath bore Adonijai, Abital bore Sheftaliah, and Eglath bore Ethrim. In Jerusalem, Bathsheba bore Solomon. Shamua, Sholab, and Nathan, and unnamed wives, get this, unnamed wives, bore nine other sons. And of course, that does not take into account the children born to David through his concubines. David's family was enormous, all with different mothers and a home made up of half-brothers. Can you imagine the bickering and the jealousy between the wives and the squabbles and the fights amongst the children? I cannot imagine it being a home of nurture and tranquility.
So publicly, the picture is David was a great success, but privately, his family was totally dysfunctional, caused by himself. And it wasn't long before the reality of that home burst onto the public arena for all to see. Now let's look at the extent of his power and prestige. Then David took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David, that's Jerusalem. He built up the area around it from terraces inward and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Economically, Israel had never known anything like it. They were truly living in the land of milk and honey. Historian uh, Frederick Owen captures it for us in a masterful way. This is what he says. Everything favoured national prosperity for Israel. There was no great power in Western Asia inclined to prevent her becoming a powerful monarchy. The Hittites had been humbled. Egypt, under the last kings of the 21st dynasty, had lost her prestige and had all but collapsed. The Philistines were driven to a narrow portion of their old dominion, and the king of Tyre sought friendly alliance with David. With a steady hand, David set out to force back and defeat Israel's enemies, who had constantly crowded, horned, and harassed the Hebrews. Moab and Ammon were conquered. Then the Edomites, alarmed at the ever-increasing power of Israel, rose against David, but were routed by Abishai, who penetrated to Petra and became master of the country. Commercial highways were open, thrown open and, it came, and, it, and in came merchandise, culture, and wealth from Phoenicia, Damascus, Assyria, Arabia, Egypt, and from more distant lands. To his people, David was king, judge, and general. But to the nations about, he was the leading power in all the Near Eastern world, the mightiest monarch of his day. David's power and prestige were without equal in the world of his time. And such power provides the arena for dangerous temptations which few can handle. As the saying goes, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And although the hand of God is upon David, he is still a human being. David's accomplishments were enormous. He expanded Israel's territory 
from 15,550 square kilometres to 155,400 square kilometres. He established extensive trade routes that went throughout the known world and wealth just poured into Israel. Spiritually, he united the nation under Jehovah God and made it possible for the priests to function according to the law of Moses and he destroyed the pagan altars throughout the land. And also, if that's not enough, being spiritually gifted, remember he's a partaker of the Holy Spirit, he gave to Israel and the world patterns of acceptable worship and praise to God. David also had many natural talents. He was a brilliant planner, extremely competent manager, and a magnificent military commander. He was indeed the main man of his time. His rise was spectacular. Now, David's downfall. One, David lost control of his family. This often happens to CEOs and executives. They have made it big time in the corporate world or even as pastors in the church world, admired by everyone for their achievement. But at home, they're a disaster. And they lose their children, and they don't know why. You see, David had too many wives. <laughs> I mean, one's enough, isn't it? <laughs> I hear the women saying, one, one husband's enough as well. One wife is enough. He had too many children to be able to nurture and guide them. We're thinking of at least 20. And you see, David was a passionate man and gave himself totally to all his women. And as a result, there were too many children who were all thrown together and left, them, left to themselves to bring themselves up. We know if there is a lack of parental discipline and proper control, children will become disobedient, disrespectful and self-centered regardless of whether the parents are rich or poor. David, at the height of his power, applauded by his people for all his great achievements, but at home, he was a disaster. He was the classic case of the absent father. Uh, just last week, I was speaking to a woman at the bank reunion I went to and she was talking about the lack of respect that her teenage grandchildren 
had for their, for their parents. She said they just do as they like. And it just reminds me again of when will parents learn that they do not love their children by indulging them and giving them everything they want. When that happens, the children just develop an entitlement attitude. David lost control of his family. And this is seen when Ammon raped his half-sister Tamar, which then led him to being murdered by Absalom, Tamar's brother, David's only reaction was he was angry. He didn't know what to do, didn't know how to handle it. And then two years later, having been restored to the family, Absalom tried to take the throne of his father and was killed by Joab for his coup d'etat. David's family seethed with tension, jealousy, rivalry. That was the first thing about David's downfall. Too many wives, too many children, an absent father, totally clueless on how to deal with the rebellion in his family. Second, he sowed the seeds of Israel's demise and ultimate destruction through his lack of self-control in relation to women who, as I said, he collected like trophies. He set a horrible example to his sons. In fact, Solomon, the next king, took his father's bad example to a whole new level. We know from the scripture that Solomon had 700 wives and 3,000 concubines. And a number of those wives were from foreign countries who worshipped Baal and other gods. And Solomon even allowed them to set up altars to these foreign gods in Jerusalem. Look what it says in 1 Kings 11 verse 4. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the, as the heart of David his father had been. So we can understand how later, when David saw Bathsheba bathing, here was another woman he had to have. And his lust led to murder. And if you go forward into 2 Samuel and you read the record, you'll discover it was when he had nothing to do. David didn't know how to handle his leisure time. You see, he did not go out to battle. He left that to Joab and his generals. And after the adultery with Bathsheba, 
He was never the same again. And his life went on a downward spiral. Later he made a foolish decision, if you read the record, that cost 70,000 lives of his people. David could not handle power. Very few can. And although he used his power, as we've already understood, for the betterment of his people, he also used it for his own lust. Lust is giving in to wrong, uncontrolled desires or appetites. And it does not only apply to sexual behaviour, it can apply to such things as power and money and position and popularity, where people will do anything to get what they want. Through this one character flaw in David's character, the seeds of the nation's destruction centuries later came to harvest. I close with a timeless truth. There is no more important pursuit in life than continually seeking to know God. It doesn't matter how long we've been on the pathway. Knowing God, going deeper with God, is life's number one priority. Look at 2 Peter 1.10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent. And the word in the Greek for diligent there means have an urgency of determination. An urgency of determination to make sure your calling and election is real. For as you practice these things, you will never stumble. The true test of a real Christian experience is a continuing diligence and effort to know Christ and to have a full of experience of Christ. Paul says, forgetting those things which are behind, I press on. Also, he says to Timothy about his ministry, and even though it's to a young pastor, it applies to all of us. He says this, take pains, have actual involvement, make every effort to know the truth about God and what he has done in salvation and how he wants us to live. In other words, he is saying to Timothy, keep your head and your heart together. He says, be absorbed into them. This relationship of God should just permeate our whole life, filling us with joy and peace and understanding and capacity to serve others so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere at, in these things. 
For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both of yourself and for those who hear you. Timothy is, uh, Paul is saying to Timothy, don't let your experience of God go stale. That's what happened to David. The words were still there, but the heart wasn't. Paul is saying to Timothy, keep your relationship fresh. Keep it real. Don't let it go stale. The sad thing is that so often Christians allow their experience of Christ to go on the back burner as they pursue other things, other delights. But Jesus made it very, very clear when he said this, Matthew 6.33, Seek first, number one, the kingdom of God, that is to live under the rule of the king and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. All that you will ever need will be given to you. But the number one priority that David lost and that so many Christians lose is the priority of continually seeking God, yearning to know him more and more, never satisfied with what they know and what they've experienced. And when we do that, when God is the centre, so many things sort themselves out. I remember some years ago hearing a testimony of a small businessman and he was challenged about his prayer life and his excuse had always been, I'm far too busy, I run a business, I've got to, I've got to the moment I awake I'm, I'm out there because I have a business to run. But he was so challenged by the ministry of a particular pastor that he made a vow to God that he would spend the first hour of his day regardless of what he had to do he would spend that hour with God in prayer and in meditation upon the scripture and he said the strange thing happened he said I got more done than I ever used to get before and he said, it was amazing that I even had spare time during the day because he got the main thing right. And being right with God and walking with God, he was able to make better decisions about everything else. And he never regretted the day that he made that vow to spend an hour with God each day. That's the sort of thing that Paul is talking about to Timothy. Take pains. Be absorbed in the things of God. And so the question for us simply is this this morning. Has our experience gone stale?
Is it just ho-hum? Or is there an excitement? An anticipation every morning when I get up to read the scriptures. Is there an, an excitement and an anticipation? God is going to speak to me today. That's what we need. You see, what we need today is not just Christianity, but we need vital, vital, vital Christians who are walking in tune with their God.